0: Well, it's, uh, it's, it's week two now, and how many of you were here last week? Raise them high. So there's a few people that weren't here last week, and uh, I know that happens a lot in the summer. So, um, so I wanted to kind of catch you up. Always, if you miss a message, if you miss a week, and you kind of want to know what we talked about, and uh, so you can keep up with us, I'm almost always preaching series. Uh, so if you miss a week and you want to keep it up with the series, we have a website linwoodchurch.org/slash/media. If you go to that page, it will have the last six or so messages available there. And uh, if you have a smartphone or or a computer and you want to go to an iTunes podcast, uh, we have a few more weeks available uh, there. So, um, so you can always keep up. But just to kind of to bring you up to speed, if you haven't had an opportunity to do that, we started last week with this idea and these really famous words from Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, he declares that we, his followers, we, his people, are the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the earth. Of the earth. And he says, But if the salt has lost its saltiness, it's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under men. And we use that as sort of a launching pad or a foundational statement for this series, uh, where we're talking about being heavenly minded and earthly good. Heavenly minded and earthly good. There's a famous quotation from Oliver Wendell Holmes that uh, he looked at somebody and said, You know, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And Johnny Cash picked up on that and put it in a, in a song. And uh, it's kind of come to, to be this idea that we can be so focused and so separate and so apart from the world uh, that we're no good to the world. And yet Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And salt has a couple of functions. chief among them is it's a savory function. It, it brings out the best. You put the right amount of salt on a piece of meat and cook it just right. It tastes wonderful. And if you don't put any salt on it, it just tastes okay. Not great. That salt enhances and, and, and draws out the very best. And, and Jesus is saying that we as his followers are to be the same in the world. And the other thing that it does is it has a preservative quality. It it preserves. And so before refrigeration, they would pack meat in salt, and the salt would go in and chase out all the water and all the uh, things that could cause the meat to decay and become contaminated and so forth, and it would preserve the meat. And that's what we're to do as well. And so we're to infiltrate this world and have a savory bringing out the best and a preservative uh, keeping things from decaying and falling apart. We're supposed to have that impact. And if we don't, if we're not salty, as Jesus says, then we're just get thrown out on the pathways to keep the weeds from coming up. Because even low-quality bad salt can do that. And so last week we talked about the idea of being. The key word was to be so heavenly-minded that we can't help but do earthly good. That we would be focused and set our sights on heavens and set our eyes and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and professor of our faith, and be heavenly-minded, but so heavenly-minded that we can't help but do earthly good. That we would set our hearts and minds on the things above, that we would take off the sinful nature and be renewed in knowledge, in the image of our Creator. And we talked about some ways that we do that. We, we use Scripture every single day. We put Scripture in every single day into our lives. We, we journal, we pray, we, we serve, we, we do these things together, but we do them personally. And there's, there's the first message in this series was really focused on the individual, on you, on the person in your chair, setting your mind, setting your heart on the things above. And today we get to talk a little bit more about how we do these things together. What it means to be a part of the family of God. What it means to be heavenly minded and earthly good as a church. How are we to be heavenly minded and earthly good at church? How do we do fellowship and worship and discipleship and do them together because God's church, I'm firmly convinced, was meant to be a place where we build each other up, where we encourage each other, where we strengthen each other, where we come alongside each other, where we disciple each other, and we bring out the best in each other and come alongside to do that on a regular basis. It's not a place to tear down or to complain about or to compete with one another, but rather to celebrate with each other. And that as we experience fellowship together, the joys get multiplied and the sorrows and burdens get divided as we share them with one another. So my hope and my prayer is that we would each take a step towards that today and how we can be heavenly minded and earthly good at church. Now, I always like little signs. I don't look around for signs, you know, but every now and then something comes along that kind of nudges me and says, you're You're doing it in the right direction. You're going in the right direction. You're getting more good than bad. And uh, so when I opened up my email today, and the Caleb verse of the day was Colossians 3.12, I thought, oh... I must have stumbled into the right place because we're going to be in Colossians 3, chapter 12. And so something like a hundred million people got that email and, and we're all together in it today. As we as we start in Colossians chapter 3, I'll read verses 12 through 17 to you, um, but I, I just got a kick out of seeing that as the Caleb verse for the day today. And so I will read verses 12 through 17 to you. I really want you to get out a Bible. If you have one that you bring with you, great. If you have one on your hip in, a, in the form of a cell phone or maybe bring a tablet. If not, there is a Bible in front of you, uh, in, in the seat in front of you, unless you're on the front row in which case they're at one end or the other. There'll be a Bible there. And uh, if you use one of our pew Bibles, you can open up to page 1834. And let's read this together, Um, read these words. uh, Building upon what we talked about last week, we have another therefore that opens this passage. And so Paul is taking steps. And so this last step, verses 1 through 11, now he's building upon that foundation. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy And dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all, with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word, and it's his word for us today. And so I want to work through this verse by verse and, and look because it's really loaded up. Each verse seems like it has three or four key words that we kind of have to understand. So, um, so I'll try to do that quickly and, uh, and everything. But before we do that, as we look at verse 12, where we're encouraged as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, I want you to close your eyes, and I I want everyone to do this. I, I want even the cool people that don't close your eyes when the pastor tells you to close your eyes. If you would close your eyes for a moment, and when everyone's eyes are closed, keep them closed, and and tell me, say as one person as one voice, what is the main color of my shirt? Pink. Everybody agree that it's pink. All right, you can open your eyes. Some of you cheated. I saw you cheating. When you keep your eyes open and I'm up here looking at you, I can see you with your eyes open. That's okay. Yeah, the shirt, the primary color is pink, isn't it? And how do you know that? Because it's, it's immediately recognizable, isn't it? And when we talk, when Paul tells us to clothe ourselves... And then he lists five things. He lists compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He's talking about clothing yourself in those in just the same way that my shirt is immediately recognizable to you as being predominantly pink. I almost wore a polo that was a solid color, but I really wanted to wear this shirt, and I had been to the cleaner, so it was pressed, and the collar was right, and so I just went ahead and wore the shirt. But, but when we talk about The clothing that we wear, it's it's what people see first, it's the first impression. And so when Paul talks about clothing yourself, what is the first thing people see from a character standpoint or a characteristic standpoint when they see you? Is it the things he's talking about here? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? Or is it something else? Is it something else that they see first when they see you, much as you could see my shirt? And remind, be reminded that last week he talked about taking off in verses 5 through 9, 9a. Nine he talks about taking certain things off and, and that there are things that have to go first. And we talked about getting rid of those, that we would be heavenly-minded and earthly, not bad, that we, we aren't doing bad things with anger and rage and malice and sexual immorality and all the things that he lists there in those verses. We take them off first, and then we clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and faithfulness. So I was reminded last week, I've preached on this passage a number of times, and for whatever reason it didn't come to mind, but a really good example of this taking off and putting on is when I was about six years old. I don't know how or why or, or what caused it to happen, but I came into the possession of a pair of Superman underwear. Superman underwear. They were bright red, and they had that Superman emblem, and they were my favorite underwear. The problem is I only had one pair, and it was World War III. Every time I had to take those Superman underwear off so that they could be washed, and then I would put them on again just as soon as I could. In fact, I would often be known to take a pair of clean underwear on and put them on over my Superman underwear and try to get away with that. And it doesn't really work, does it? No, the, the, the bad has to go off. The dirty has to go off so that we can put on the clean, so that we can put on these things. So I want to talk first about who he's addressing. Uh, In verse 12, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, he's addressing those who are followers of Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you're exploring, uh, you're off the hook a little bit for what we're going to be talking about today. Not that I recommend it, because if you're off the hook, that means that you're not one of God's chosen people. You're not holy and dearly loved, and that's a perilous a perilous posture to have before him. But when he talks about being chosen, he talks about being selected or being favorite or being favored, that God has chosen you. He has chosen the person next to you. He looks at you, and he desires deeply that you would be a part of his family so that you can join him on his mission in this world so that you can experience all the joy of following him and the peace that comes from that and the hope that comes from that uh, regardless of your circumstances. He also refers to us as holy. Holy means to be set apart. It, just, it doesn't just mean that you check all the right boxes. Uh, that's part of it, that, that we live a holy lifestyle, that we that we seek to, to not bring anything we talked last week about. Let nothing come between us and God. And let nothing take the place of God in our hearts. We're holy. We're set apart, sacred, pure, blameless through Christ, that we have been set apart to pursue Him and to pursue His will in His ways and we are dearly loved dearly loved the the literal word would be beloved we're recipients of that divine sacrificial agape love of god that we have the opportunity and the invitation to be his dearly loved children in his dearly loved family and those are the people that he addresses and those are the people that Paul was writing to in the church at Colossae and, and saying therefore clothe yourselves clothe yourselves. and he says five things uh, I want to look at each of those and, and talk about these characteristics because these should be the things that are immediately recognizable in us as we go out into the world as we come into the church and have fellowship and worship and, and grow and learn together and then we go out into the world we go out clothed in compassion compassion is this tender hearted mercy. It's, it's pity. Um, it's, it's where we don't give people what they deserve. We give them something better than they deserve. That, that we choose to to be compassionate towards them and to put ourselves in their shoes. And instead of throwing darts at them, we say, I wonder what has happened in their lives to cause them to respond in that way if they're offending us. or Or what what might be going on right now that would, that would cause that person to respond to me the way that they did? What was out of character? And we have a compassionate posture towards them that says, How can I help? What, what is going on in your world that, that I can show compassion towards? We're kind. We put on kindness. Kindness is goodness. But it also has the meaning of being useful. That we seek to be useful. That, that we seek to, to help or offer some sort of assistance. And one definition of it is that it would be moral excellence in character and demeanor, that that we seek to be kind to others, to treat each other the way that we want to be treated. That's a real element of kindness. Samuel Johnson, who was an English writer, um, he, he said, "...kindness is in our power even when fondness is not." And I find it interesting, nowhere in Scripture are we told to like anybody. Right, We're told to love them. We're told to sacrificially love them. We're told to uh, experience brotherly love one with another. But we're not necessarily told to manufacture emotions of fondness or affinity, but rather to do the action of love. And kindness is in our capacity or in our power, even when fondness is not. We can choose to be kind. Another, the third is Humility. Humility speaks to a, a lowliness of mind, a, a humiliation of mind. But humiliation, we often think, is, is associated with embarrassment or, or something like that. And, uh, and humility, true humility, uh, is not thinking less of yourself or self-abasement. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, it's, it's thinking of yourself less. It's, it's putting others First, it's considering the needs of others ahead of yourself. And so that's humility, where we hold our power and our ability and our influence for the good of others, not just for ourselves. And so the opposite of humility would be selfishness or pride or self centeredness. Humility is in others. Centeredness. And it's immediately recognizable. You know people that you would describe as humble. You know people who go through life putting others first and meeting the needs of others before they meet the needs of themselves. The fourth is gentleness. Gentleness is one of those often misunderstood words. Uh, Gentleness does not equate to weakness. Often it's been translated as meekness or uh, this idea that you're gentle and so you must be a little timid or a little weak. And it's just the opposite. True gentleness is incredible strength, incredible power that has been brought under the control of another or brought under self-control. So true gentleness is is power or strength that has been harnessed and placed in in the control of God. It's that strength that has been put under his control. The final one is patience. Patience has to do with long suffering. It has to do with fortitude or forbearance. I love how the Amplified uh, Bible amplifies the word patience, saying the power to endure whatever comes with good temper. With good temper. And every now and then, very rarely, but every now and then, I run across people who who maybe have the power to endure whatever may come, but not with good temper. And, and so our compassionate inclination towards them would be understanding and, and to not return in kind. Uh, but, but an element of patience is that we would not just endure whatever comes, but do so with good temper, with a good disposition, with a, a reminder of who we are and whose we are and what are the eternal realities about us so that we can not just endure, but endure with a good temper. And I find it interesting as we talk about being heavenly minded and earthly good together at church that all five of these attributes that we're talking about they're all characteristics of Christ. They're all things that we see immediately recognizable in the person of Jesus Christ as we read the gospels. And secondary to that or or in addition to that, we see that they are all relational attributes that that you can't go off into the woods all by yourself and be compassionate because compassion needs somebody that we're being compassionate towards. You can't go off into the woods all by yourself and be humble, because you're the only one there. You can't put anybody else first. You might have to be patient, I'll, I'll grant you that, but I think the patience that we're talking about often has to do with being patient with each other, doesn't it? And so we see that we are to come together as the body of Christ, and to put these things on, and to practice and grow these things in the family of God, so that when we go out into the world, they'll be immediately recognizable in us, and we will be Kind and compassionate and humble and patient with the world out there because we've learned to be those things in here. You see, we we make an impression with what we wear, but we make an impact with who we are. And so we want to not just impress people, We want to impact them for Jesus Christ. And we want to impact the people that God sends to us for Jesus Christ. And as we go out into the world, we don't want to just impress people with how kind or humble or compassionate we are. We want to impact the world for Jesus Christ. In fact, as we move on to verse 13, there are a couple of really big commands in verse 13. And they are not possible without the virtues of verse 12. Because we're told in verse 13 to bear with each other. To bear with each other. And that command to bear with each other has a couple of meanings. The first is that we would endure, <laughs> endure each other. Sometimes bearing with somebody is the practice of kind of enduring them. And uh, I remember one time a pastor was uh, speaking at a conference. He was talking about the, this phrase that pastors throw around sometimes called EGRs. Have everybody ever heard of EGRs? Extra grace required people. And he kept going and going and going. And I started to get a little irritated and I wrote in my notes, you are one too. <laughs> and then as I stared at those words, they did that thing that words do sometimes where they kind of became three-dimensional and came off the page and it was like, oh, I am one too. And the realization that, that I'm an EGR to somebody or that I was at some point before I was in my current form, right? No, that, that I still am, that there are people that I get under their skin, and there are people whose skin I know I got under when I was early in my walk with Christ. And and they were patient, and they bear with me, and they endured with me. But there's another meaning to that bear with, and, and that's to suffer with, to suffer alongside, to bear with someone as we choose a compassionate response, that we bear with them. And I think this has to do with empathy, that we choose to be empathetic towards others, not just sympathy, you know, where we kind of pat them on the head and say, oh, that's too bad, but empathy goes a step beyond that, and empathy chooses to feel the same pain that the other person is feeling, to bear that pain with them, to come alongside them and share that burden. An empathetic response never begins with, well, at least, and we come up with something worse. An empathetic response says, wow, I that's got to be rough. I, I see your pain. And I just, I don't know what to say right now, but I'm I'm with you in that pain and in that difficulty. And the second command in verse 13 is that we would forgive. That we would forgive. And not ordinary forgiveness either. Did you notice this? Sometimes I want to cross out what follows after after Paul says, forgive one another. I want to move on to verse 14, but But he says, forgive one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now that, that is a very high standard. That is a very high standard. And this word that we're translating as forgive here has its roots in the word grace. Has its roots in the word that we translate as grace. But it it adds a little bit to that word that's essentially extend grace. Extend unmerited favor. Extend the favor that you have received from God to another one. Be charitable. And extend the grace to them. And we find with forgiveness, as we forgive, our capacity for love grows. As we choose to forgive those who have wronged us, as we choose to forgive as the Lord forgave us, our capacity for love grows. And we become that conduit of the Holy Spirit into those situations. Verse 14 tells us that we're to put on love over all these. So you clothe yourselves in all those and just in case something's a little off, put love over all of it. Self-sacrificing agape love goes over all of it, over all of these virtues. And it caused me to realize that it is possible to do these actions, to do these things without love as their pure actions. And it must have occurred to Paul too, and that's why he says that love is what binds them all together in perfect unity. Love becomes the motivation for all of it. The motivation for our compassion, the motivation for our kindness, the motivation for our humility and our gentleness and our patience must be love. Not that we will benefit from it in some way, but that the recipient will benefit greatly. Because love completes or makes mature the virtues that we see in verse 12. And it's love that enables us to bear with, whether that means to endure a difficult person or to suffer alongside somebody who's hurting deeply. It's love that enables us to grant forgiveness, even when it's hard. And so we bind all of these things together with love. And then, in verse 15, he kind of shifts gears a little bit, but he goes from what we do to uh, what's going on internally. He goes from the external to the internal. In verse 15, he says that uh, that we are to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and to be thankful. And so when we talk about peace, we're talking about uh, oneness, quietness, rest. Those are all elements of peace that, that you maybe have heard the, the saying before that, that peace is not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of justice. And, and I'm sure as Paul wrote these, being a Hebrew person growing up in the Hebrew culture, he would have had the idea of shalom in mind. We've talked about this word shalom a couple of times here. It's this Hebrew word that denotes so much more than the absence of conflict. It, it's the presence of wholeness and, completeness and and, and justice. And so he's saying, let that peace, that justice, that, that completeness of Christ rule in your hearts. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, he says, Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's an element of rest that comes in the peace of Christ. The relief, the ease, the refreshment, the blessed quiet that comes in in following Christ as we pursue oneness with him. And that is what is to rule in our hearts. To rule means to arbitrate or to govern, to prevail, to motivate and to call the shots. That what is ruling in your life is the thing that is compelling you, that is moving you forward, that is making decisions for you. Is it the peace of Christ that is ruling in your hearts or is it something else? Is it something else? And this really becomes an issue of lordship. It becomes an issue of, of who is calling the shots. What is ruling in your life? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Because Jesus must be Lord, not just Savior. And a lot of people raise their hand when you ask if they want a Savior. But if you ask, do you want a Lord? Do you want, do you want a Lord that is going to, to call the shots in your life? They may be a little more timid about raising their hand. But Jesus is to be Lord, not just Savior. In fact, there's several hundred times in the New Testament that he is referred to as Lord. Only about 16 times can we find that he's referred to as Savior. Jesus is to be the Lord of our lives. He is to rule in our lives and if if we just want a savior it's more like we just want a therapist you want you want a lord or a therapist you want to make an appointment once a week for 50 minutes to get in get out hope the waiting room doesn't take too long and and hope the bill is not too much that's a therapist if we're looking for a lord we're looking for somebody that we're going to turn over our lives to and let him call the shots in our lives so we let the peace of christ rule in our lives Then verse 16, we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. I think these two are related. I think that the peace of Christ rules in our hearts increasingly as we have the word of Christ in our hearts. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, not occasionally, not poorly. It dwells in us richly, permanently, lavishly. I preached a sermon on these three verses, 15, 16, and 17, one time, and I called it Five Star Hotels for Christ. Five-star hotels for Christ. I don't use that phrase anymore because people don't live in hotels, usually. And Christ's word is to live in us, but to live richly. And that was the whole point of the message, to live richly, that we would make every accommodation. Have you ever stayed at a five-star hotel? It's a trip. I mean, it's amazing. You go into this place, and I mean, they have thought of everything. I had an opportunity in high school. It was the only time I can recall that I ever stayed in a five-star hotel. It was the Broadmoor down by um, Colorado Springs. Maybe you've heard of it. This beautiful accommodation. I was at a conference. They had thought of absolutely everything. And they charged you for absolutely everything, I found out. But, But they thought of everything. And I think that's the point. And I think that's what Paul is saying here, that we would let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Now, to dwell means to occupy, to inhabit, not just to visit occasionally, but to reside in and remain in. And this word richly means copiously and abundantly, that that every accommodation has been made, that we really set the table for Christ's word to dwell in us richly. And before we get to verse 17, I want to, I want to point out one thing, that in each of these verses, 15, 16, and 17, there's a command or, or, uh, or a suggestion or, or an inclusion of the, the concept of gratitude. Did you pick up on that? In verse 15, we're told uh, to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Since members of one body, we were called to peace and be thankful. Verse 16, when you get through all the psalms, hymns, and, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And verse 17, that last phrase is giving thanks to God the Father through him, through Christ. That we're told to be grateful. Three times in three verses. Gratitude is such an important part of being heavenly minded and earthly good here among our church people. We have much to celebrate. We have much to celebrate. And we have much to give thanks for and to express our gratitude for. Because gratitude is inevitable wherever grace is present. And if grace is present in the fellowship of believers, there will be gratitude one to another and together to God. And gratitude Gratitude only disappears when we forget the good things that God has done. An absence of gratitude is a presence of forgetfulness because we are recipients of divine love and he has canceled the debt that our sins had created and he has ushered us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We have much to be thankful for regardless of our circumstances. And finally, in verse 17... Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do. I heard a sermon series that was titled, God's Will is Whatever. And it was, it was focused on this verse. And his will is that whatever you do, you would do it in the name of Jesus Christ. That whatever you do as a, as a vocation, whether you're a teacher or a mechanic or, or a doctor or a business owner, whatever you do, you would do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do in the morning and whatever you do in the evening and whatever you do on the weekends, that you would do it in the name of Christ. And we talked last week about an integrity of, of, of our lives, that, that we would be who we are and whose we are wherever we are, that there would be integrity in our beating, that we would be indivisible. That's what that word integrity has its roots in, is the word integer. And an integer is a whole number, that we would be whole people, not divided, not one way in certain situations and another way in other situations, but that we would be who we are in our identity in Christ. And we would be whose we are, his beloved children, wherever we are. And he's saying this again, that whatever we do, whether in word or deed, that we would do it all, all in the name of the Lord Jesus So if you can't do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, don't do it. We really don't have any business doing something that we can't say in Jesus' name to. And that should give us pause occasionally. I can't yell at my kids in Jesus' name most of the time. So I probably shouldn't be doing that. And I can't be selfish and pout and get my nose out of joint over something in Jesus' name. No, I can be kind and compassionate and gentle and humble and patient in Jesus' name. I can be loving in Jesus' name. I can bear with difficult people and I can suffer alongside people in Jesus' name. And I can forgive in Jesus' name. I can let the word of Christ dwell in me richly in Jesus' name. And I can seek to follow him in everything that I do in Jesus' name. I can let his peace rule in my life in Jesus' name. So what's the bottom line? Well, I had about four different bottom lines that came to mind as I worked through this and you've heard a couple of them and some of the sticky statements that that I threw out there but the one that kind of settled or emerged as as I looked at the thing as a whole was this idea don't just act like a Christian be one don't just act like a Christian don't just come to church and act like a Christian don't just go out into the world and act like a Christian be one be who you are and whose you are wherever you are to everyone that you meet be everything that we've talked about today. Don't just fake it till you make it. We're the people of God. We're the people of God on this earth, representing Christ to the world around us. We can't fake it till we make it. We've got to be who we are and whose we are, wherever we are. We have to choose. And we'll be better at this together. That's why we come and do this. Because we are better together. Because we draw strength from each other. Because we learn from each other. Because we go through life together. And we multiply each other's joys. And we divide each other's burdens. We have an opportunity and an invitation to be better together. So therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved... Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive each other. And any grievances that you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As you sing, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. For the invitation that you give to each and every one of us. To be your beloved children. To be set apart for your purposes. And to be about your business. Not only as we come together in this place, Lord, but as we go from this place into our families, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces and into the world. Lord, show us where we've put something else on, something besides compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Show us where where your word doesn't have a permanent home in our hearts. Show us where, where your peace is not ruling within us. Show us if there's anything that we're doing that we can't do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because you call us to yourself. We love you. We reach out to receive your hand. And follow you into all that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.